Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. False. Dude, that's not even close to the truth. Discussing agile methods can become a controversial topic. There are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what agile is and how the approach to project management is used. In this episode, we discuss seven myths about Agile, first talking about the myth and then discussing facts about Agile to dispel the myth. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I moved the server rack by myself. You Um, did? Yeah, it was was weird. I, I, I went out and I did 100 kettlebell swings with a 32 kilo, so it didn't go too crazy, right? And uh, then I just came in and I looked at that server rack. I'm like, I can move that by myself. And so I just did. Uh, you know, nice. which I mean, it doesn't sound like much because it was it was emptied out. I got the shelves off of it and all that, um, but it's around a couple of real tight corners, and that thing is big and it's heavy, and so mm-hmm. it was it was a little tricky to get out. So um, I did that. We have way more room in the recording room. Um, it's really nice. The lighting is better. Just uh, just in general, it just like, it feels like a new recording environment. It does. And, and I think that's part part of why we're so hyper tonight. So there's that. I've also been, again, fighting burnout. That hit me in the middle of Music City Tech, mm-hmm. roughly. And I really don't think I recognized how bad it was. Yeah. I guess I'm kind of coming out of it. Um, I, did, I don't know if I mentioned on here before, you know, the, the week of Music City Tech, we went to a friend's, a close friend from college's funeral. Mm-hmm. And then come back from that. Go to work the next day. Had to work two really hard days to get everything done before Music City Tech. And then we go to that. Mm-hmm. And those were long days. And and so I, I understand how it happened. Um, there wasn't anything different I could do. Yeah. It's just, it's the situation that we were in. Yeah. So how about you? Well, I spoke at the Digital Government Summit earlier this week. I was part of a team talking about the agile mindset and um, sort of how to think agile. Part of my talk was on the myths of Agile. Sound familiar? People wonder where we get our ideas. This one was a little obvious, but way too easy to not put into an episode. It was just after writing my part of the talk, I looked at it and went, I have got to reuse this because this material is too good to to not. Yeah. I've been working on getting ahead on our editing and show notes. I'm getting ready to go up to Cleveland in a couple of weeks for a family vacation. While up there, I'll get to see all of my nieces and nephews. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm not going to take any laptop with me. I may take my Kindle and read some, but I'm not going to do any work while I'm there. I'm only there for a long weekend, so it'll be fun. We're going to be doing a lot of activities with the kids and stuff for them. So with that in mind, I have a project for the kids this week for IOTs. So this week I have a project called the Little Rover, and this is a simple obstacle-avoiding robot controlled with an Arduino Nano. The tutorial was put together by an uncle, and the robot put together by his niece and nephew. This is a good project for elementary school kids 
with some adult supervision. It's housed in a small box um, and uses an ultrasonic sensor to avoid obstacles. It looks like a fun project that is a little bit educational and a lot of fun to build and then play with once it's completed. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed a tweet from Lauren Mayers. It says, 9 out of 100. Started the FCC technical documentation page. Really want to put a responsive hamburger-style nav bar in for mobile. So I'll be working on that this weekend, plus refactoring some CSS after listening to at complete dev pod CSS code smells. Hashtag 100 days of code. That's why when it said 9 out of 100, I was like, what? Yeah, it, when <laughs> That's it first, not a real high rating, but I, I realized it's day 9 out of 100 days of code. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. That is really cool. Lauren, thanks for the tag. We are glad that you enjoyed the show. Send us a direct message with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And by we've got, we actually have water bottles in-house now. Finally. I know. <laughs> Man, that, that, I mean, that was, that was legit a long quest. I mean, well, we started looking at changing the water bottles in March. And then I took half of March and most of April to pick out the ones that I wanted to show you. Then you looked over and told me the ones you liked. So it, it was a back and forth. And then, then we had Music City Code coming up at the end of May. So we decided to hold off on purchasing them uh, until after the conference. Uh, and so they just, they arrived at my place last night. Super excited. I've already given one out to, uh, to someone that we know who has been, uh, on the show, but, um, We've got several to send out to people, and we're going to stick a few extras in there sort of as a thank you for being patient with us over the last couple of months while we, we bought new water bottles. But if you guys would like your very own water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Path, Instagram, and Tumblr. Check us out each week as... We get on Facebook and Twitter live and talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. People have a lot of strong feelings about agile methodologies. Some love it, some don't. In 2001, several developers met at a ski lodge. Over the course of their time there, they developed the Agile Software Development Manifesto. From those beginnings, Agile methodologies have made their way into the common vernacular of almost all development shops. There are many misconceptions about Agile and the different approaches to it. This episode comes from a talk that I participated in. My portion was the myths of Agile. While there are more than seven myths and misconceptions about Agile, I was only given seven minutes for the talk, so I aimed for one per minute. Unfortunately, I ended up going about 12 minutes in my section. So I got a little bit more than that. I was not the only one that went over. That's almost a metaphor for a failed sprint, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is almost a metaphor. <laughs> but uh, these are compiled from several different sources, which I listed in the show notes. And in researching this, I looked for myths that appeared in multiple places, multiple ways. Now, the first few are objections to using Agile. And then... The last set are oversimplifications or misunderstandings of how Agile is used. For each one, we'll look at the myth and replace it with facts about Agile. The first myth is there is no documentation. The origins of this myth come from a line of the Agile Manifesto, which states, We value working software 
over comprehensive documentation. Which is fair enough. Yeah. And note that the wording doesn't mention no documentation. The emphasis is on functional software. You got to think about the time period um, when this was written. You know, this was the tail end of college for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think I first read the Agile Manifesto probably early 2003 or real late in 2002. Mm -hmm. Because, well, it would have been 2003 early. I remember where I was sitting when I read that. At that time, software came with manuals. Like you got, you know, you got a CD-ROM or floppy disks. Those were still around. Mm -hmm. And you got a manual, like a printed, that's the state documentation was in. I remember like when you went to the store and bought software, it was a box about the shape and size of a book. Right. Because you had a book inside of it. Yeah. And there's probably a few of those floating around here somewhere, you know, that I have around. That's where they were coming from. It was the build the software, test it, write this massive chunk of documentation, finding bugs while you're in there, of course, and having to go back and change the docs mm-hmm. and fiddle with it. It wasn't, oh, hey, we have a wiki. It was a yeah. completely different world. Mm-hmm. So the idea with the Agile Manifesto and with what they're getting at here is that there's less emphasis on extraneous documentation. Because with Agile, the project continually evolves during the development process. So they focus on creating working products instead of a lot of upfront detailed documentation. Because like um, the, the waterfall or really a misconstrued version, what most people were doing with waterfall was creating this huge set of specs and documentation for something that hadn't been built yet. Yeah, because the thing is, it's waterfall was supposed to be like waterfalls in a creek. Not Niagara Falls. Right. It was it was supposed to be iterative from the get go. It just didn't take that way. The other thing about the extraneous documentation that people don't realize is a lot of software had bugs in it, and so instead of fixing the bugs, they would just say, "Hey, don't do this." Yeah, known issues. Right, and it would be in the docs. Like it was, it was legitimately. It was another age when this was written. So you got to. You've got to be very, very careful. It's just like interpreting something that was written in the Bronze Age and trying to apply it to the 21st century. You have to be careful because the environment was different. Mm-hmm. With Agile, you want to think of documentation as another deliverable. It should be focused, value-driven, and business beneficial. The goal here is to enable the business to use the product more effectively. You want your documentation to not include a huge list of bugs and things not to do, but be more about use case. And here's how to do the things that you want to do. Right. And that's the way I write my docs anyway. I still do the the docs for the software I write. I write those too because I enjoy doing it. Yes. Um, and my first job out of college was half technical writing and half mm-hmm. development. So I, I come from that background. But one thing that we saw a lot with documents back in the day is they would go, here's the screen. Here's what this does. Here's what this does. Here's what this does. And you had to go, okay, I have to already know <laughs> where that is in the app before I can look up how to do something. Or I've got to thumb through the entire book. Like that. Mm-hmm. That's what the Agile Manifesto was trying to fix. And on the technical side, the team needs to be able to support and maintain the project. So you need enough documentation in there. You know, I just put some documentation into my code because I wrote three or four new endpoints this afternoon um, for a story that we're doing. And in each one, I put the the XML documentation that .NET uses. Yeah. 
which I hate, by the way. But well, the reason I lo- I really like it is because it creates that help page. Yeah, the, the trick with it is you have to have a linting tool, and everybody has to use it that checks and says, "Hey, you added a parameter, and you didn't add it in the docs." Yeah, because if everybody doesn't have that, then it's just <laughs> well, when it's only one person, yeah, it's it's easier to do that. And since it's only me in the API, um, and maybe one other person. It's not a, as big a deal, but yeah. And so I, I add that in there so that the UI developers, once I publish that to our dev environment, they can go to the help page that it generates and I don't have to spend time explaining to them what it does. Yeah. Or the assumptions you made or anything yeah. like that. All, all they do is they go in and they go, okay, this is what it takes in. This is what it returns me. That's all they need to know. They need to know yeah, the path to get there, what it what to pass in, what to expect out. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's not, okay, well, I created a service that does this, and it when you call in, it calls the service, and then the service calls the repository, and, you know... It, it, yeah, it, like it, that super detailed thing. Yeah. It's like, no, here's the piece you're interacting with. Right. And so you yeah. you don't need all that. The The documentation is a, is a way of going, here's what you need, here's what you're going to get. Well, the other... The other way I, I like to view documentation is this is how you talk to other developers when you're dead. <laughs> like yeah. you get hit by a bus tomorrow. Somebody has to come in and deal with your code. How do you communicate with that person? I I suggest documentation instead of a Ouija board. <laughs> yeah. I think that's reasonable. There are several things that are needed in deliverable documentation. First, you need to know the value of the document or if it's even needed. If it's something that's not necessary, then don't create it. Right. But if it's something that is going to be useful and needed, even if you aren't going to need it, but someone else will, you need to understand the value that it's going to provide to them because otherwise you're not going to give them the information they need because all you want to do is give them the information they need. So in that documentation that I wrote for the endpoints, I gave them, here's what you pass in. Here's what you get out of it. So it, it was sort of, here's kind of how it's doing that. Yeah. I think the big thing here, the big takeaway is that it is a deliverable that is delivered to someone. Right. That's what they were getting at. Mm-hmm. The next misconception, which is my absolute favorite, um, notice the dripping sarcasm there, is that Agile doesn't require planning. <laughs> um yeah, and it, it doesn't require planning in the same sense that, you know, a camping trip doesn't require planning, right? Like, you can just go out in the woods and get eaten by a bear, and that requires no planning. Planning but, is an important step, yes. Yeah. A lot of management will use this as an excuse to not do Agile and say, we don't want to do that because there's no planning involved, and we don't have time to to not plan what we're doing. And the thing is, planning is very important. You need to know what you're building, and if you're not planning it properly, it greatly reduces the effectiveness of a project. The thing is, instead of only doing it once, Agile spreads the planning out over the course of the project. It's it's like the difference between back in the old days, when you drove to Florida, you figured out your route before you left the house. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do? You put the address in GPS, and if you run into a traffic jam, you find another way around it because you just pull off on a side road and the GPS adjusts and replans in yeah. response to that. And it's way better. Unless you have OnStar. Yeah, well. Have you, have you ever used OnStar GPSs? Yeah, well, that's all another thing. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's the idea. 
and again, this was a misconception of waterfall mm-hmm. was this whole you know grand plan. If you think about the way that a lot of very unsuccessful people plan things, what they do is they make a huge, you know, they make a plan of something like I'm I'm going to be an NBA basketball star. And they, and they go into details. They're like, all right, I'm going to do this and then this and then this and then this. And they make this huge plan. And I, I know because I used to do this with, say, exercising. Yes. I would make this huge. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Or business. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I, I, what brings it to mind with me is exercising. I, I used to do this with, with my exercise plan. I would make this huge plan out of like long exercises and stuff. And then. I would get, get hurt. I would get into it. I'd get injured or something would happen and I would miss a day or I'd miss a week and then throw the whole thing off and I'd just stop. Because plans become less accurate over time. You cannot do little picture plans mm-hmm. over large periods. You can go, hey, this is the direction we kind of want to go, but you want to be able to pivot and business mm-hmm. wants to be able to pivot. Right. And development wasn't meeting that need. They were creating a deliverable that wasn't delivered to anybody because nobody wanted it. Mm-hmm. So with Agile, there's less upfront planning. Instead, you have periodic planning sessions. Projects get started a lot quicker, and it's easier to make those adjustments along the way. So what I do now, and it's really funny because I started doing things this way long before I ever learned about Agile, but what I do now with exercising is I make a bit of upfront planning because you still need to know the direction you're going. I say, all right, I want to reach this goal. And well, I'm weight going, loss versus growing muscle mass. Right. Or yeah. endurance. Yeah. And it's like, this is the goal I want. And this is the, these are the tools I'm going to use to get there. Right. You know, I want to lose weight. So I'm going to do some hiking, some jogging and some kettlebell swings. And so I've got, that is my big up. That's my upfront plan. And then each week I go, all right, this is, I plan out the week. Right. For it. And uh, it, maybe that's why Agile made sense to me when I started doing it because I'd already learned the other way wasn't working for me. And it doesn't work for anybody, yeah. pretty much. Um, I think the biggest thing here was that whole metaphor of building software is like building a building, and it isn't. No. Gravity does not change <laughs> while you're building a building. Rarely does the use case for the building change. Yeah. It doesn't suddenly but- become an agricultural building when it used to be a bomb shelter. Right. Like, there's planning involved before that happens. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't happen halfway through construction. Whereas with software, the point of software, the reason you're not doing specialized hardware for the stuff that you're doing is so that it can mold, right? Mm -hmm. Because you could make custom hardware for stuff that's way faster, that's perfect for that use case. But it would only be for that use case. Right. And we do software because we don't know. Iterative design is based on that cyclical process. It, It evolves going through cycles of prototyping, testing, analyzing, and refining. And this increases the speed of design and changes. It also brings to light misunderstandings about the specs and the requirements a lot sooner. Because you're actually acting on them. Yeah, we we have meetings every week with our product owners and the business side and uh, some of our users. And we will get in there and we'll have built something spent, you know, a week or two building something and they'll look at it at our review and go, that is not what I expected when I told you what I wanted. You built exactly what I asked for, but I really wanted to do this. Or we had this happen at our review this uh, past week where one of the business people said, oh, can you do this with it? And like, 
We didn't even think about that. We can add that in for sure. That's a great idea, but none of us even thought about that use case. And, you know, if we weren't doing this iterative design, we would have spent six, eight months building something. And, and then, then had to rip it out. Yep. You know, that's why you hear people talk about test-driven development. The same kind of principle applies. It's that fast feedback loop. Mm-hmm. The tests are a side effect. Everybody goes, oh, I have tests if I have test-driven development. No, you have feedback during the process. The tests are a side effect. Right. And that's, that's why people miss the value of it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing happens with Agile. Along the same lines, the next myth is Agile means there is no architecture. And this also comes from a misunderstanding of a line in the Agile Manifesto, which states continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Agile is about building better products, right? It pushes back on the over-engineered products. Right, which is what tends to happen a lot of times as a reaction to not engineering in the first place, because then they have to do a refactor and they this must never happen again. So here's your over-engineered specs. Mm-hmm. And then you're not allowed to stray from the specs. Yeah, even if it makes sense. Like you're getting away from the three-tiered architecture that was so popular in the late 90s and the 2000s and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't fit the way we look at things now necessarily. And w- what ends up happening? Well everybody's locked into this because they got burned before, but you got to have some architecture going in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This can be a big pain point for people that are used to the highly engineered and structured way of planning a project Um, for, for both the management and the architects that are used to, we, we spend months planning and then we just hand that off to the developers and they go build exactly what we tell them to. Right. Cause they're peons and we're going to yeah. throw it over the wall at them. So it's, it's a pain point for them, but it's also a pain point for your, your dark matter kind of code monkey developers. Yeah. Cause while I think most of, if not all of our listeners are the type of people who want to be designing and want to be improving and building neat, interesting things, there are people out there. That for as many of us that like to do majority. this, yeah, I'll say for as many of us that like to build unique, neat things, there are twice as many or more people who just want to go in, tell me what to write. All right, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm translating spec into code. Yep, and then I go home. Right. So I saw a comic the other day that I, I really liked. It was a guy on a computer and then a guy with a coffee mug leaning on a table. You realize in a few years. We're going to have it so that we can just create specs and the computer writes the program for us. Then the next pane, it goes, oh, you know what uh, What they call a person who uh, creates specs that you put into a computer and the computer creates a program? Next pane, it goes, no, what? Final one, a coder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we already have that. That's, yeah. I mean, because, and I think that's part of the recognition here is that the structure is already there. Yeah. And, and guys, if I can find that and link to it in the XKCD, show notes, KCD, I think it, it may have been. But if I can find that and link to it in the show notes, I'll put it in here. You want to start by building the basics and then iterate over that. We talked about iterative design, and that means that you can change the way it is built during the process. Now, that doesn't mean you don't select a language and framework and stick with those larger decisions. You know, the the example that I used earlier with my exercising up front, I go, all right, I'm going to, my goal is to lose weight over this amount of time. And I'm going to use hiking, jogging and kettlebell swings. 
Right. You know, those, those are the tools that I'm going to use. Those things rarely get changed as you're going along. But you might change the exercise in question or the right. trail that you walk on. Yes, exactly. And so those, you know, I may start on the one mile basic loop. And then as I get along, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this twice in one go and it's still not even really getting my heart rate up. Let me move to the five mile advanced trail. Yeah. You know, and, and just you, you make those changes as you go along. But you don't change the the bigger stuff. That's what's the the architecture. The I am the main goal at the end doesn't change. Yeah, I mean, really, what you're doing is you're saying I'm taking a vertical slice, and mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure it works end to end with the yeah. tool chain that I have, and then I'm going to build from there. Versus going, yes, I know I know all the assumptions I need to make, and I'm going to completely build all the things out and allow for no creativity mm-hmm. in between. Mm-hmm. I worked on a system. Uh, 2004, I think. 2004, 2004. No, it was earlier than that. Might have been beginning of 2004. And they massively over-architected. Like, if you took the reputation that Java has, like Java developers have got a reputation for over-architecting things. Oh, you mean the... The, the pattern thing. soup yeah. stuff, right? If you took that and doubled it, that's what these guys had. Wow. There was a system in there... And I. I'm not joking. I could not call a web service the way I needed to and get a result back the way that the payload went. Mm. There, there was one point where I had to hack stuff in because we had a, we had a release coming up and the way I ended up passing it, I feel so bad for having done this, but there literally was no other way. Mm -hmm. The way that I returned the result was in an exception because there, the thing would carry that payload for me and it could be whatever. The other stuff was so structured that it would have been like a week's worth of work to change that signature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, I'm not proud of that. But when you over-architect things, this is what happens. So understand that this stuff was written in another world. That's the world that I came up in. Mm-hmm. That's not where we are now. Yeah. I mean, it, in most places yeah well there's that there are there are still some very old school and remember i was this episode came from a talk to government which they still have a lot of that old structure because it's it takes a lot longer to make changes yeah through that so i think the other thing too is this the architecture a lot of times very strongly reflects the architecture of the company that produced it Mm -hmm. and that's conway's law i think yeah so that happens too. The organizational structures were becoming more informal. The hierarchies were getting flattened mm-hmm. as this was happening. So it was also a recognition of, hey, we can't put this structure here anymore because the organizational structure doesn't match it. It's not like those two things are going to fight with each other the entire time. Right. Exactly. Like you don't have a lot of places with that senior architect whose sole job is just specking out systems. Right. Anymore. Because, you know, they're not really, I don't know, in my opinion, they're not really producing anything. Yeah. The other thing is it's really easy as fast as stuff is changing now for that person to get so far out of date that they're irrelevant. I mean, I've seen that one uh, a number of times. So Mm -hmm. I don't, it's just not that kind of world. Like I remember when I started playing around and this was back in the day with Visual Basic, you went to the big city because small town bookstores didn't have computer books and you got a book like a thousand page book on visual basic and you went through the examples. 
when I learned C++. Yeah, same kind of deal. My aunt went and bought me two books with, uh, I think it was for my birthday, because it was that summer between junior and senior year of high school. And my senior year, we had a class on C++. And so I spent the summer learning C++ myself. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be so ready for this class. And then I get in there and the first semester we barely got through the first chapter of the books that I had. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we're not doing anything fun. <laughs> I know. And, but back in the day, you know, you could do that and you yeah. could have a book. You look stuff up five years later in the book. Yeah. Or longer. I mean, I kept my VB6 books forever because I had a, had a client that was still doing stuff in VB6 and I would have to look stuff up to help him. And I remembered where it was in the book. You can't do that with, oh, I don't know, Node. Or Angular? You want to try to do that with <laughs> Angular? By the time, like, you could have the book, you know, if the if the book was completely up to date and perfect, by the time it comes off the printing press, something has changed. That's so true. <laughs> right. And and so if you have an organizational structure that can't move with that, it's yeah. a dinosaur. It's gone. It's not going to make it. Now, with, with architectures, I have a couple of kind of classic uh, developer things. First is Yagni. You ain't going to need it. Right. You want to focus on solving today's problems today. Don't solve tomorrow's problems today. And this is something that I've run into with some of the, uh, I guess, old guard at work where we want to do something like, well, how is this going to affect doing invoicing? And I'm like, we're not even doing invoicing yet. Right. That's that the plan to migrate that over to the newer new system is three years from now. Yeah. I mean, I get it to some point, like you don't want to paint yourself into a corner. Right. But it's easier to paint yourself into a corner with overbearing architecture than it is mm-hmm. with lightweight guidelines. Yeah. And and they're also thinking they're used to dealing the the people that I'm talking to are used to all right, we're making changes to what's already been built in production. Yeah. And I'm like, we're building greenfield stuff. So it's not in production yet. We can build it this way and then when we get to needing that, we can make adjustments. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is they're they're from a world where, and and I come from this, too, right, where you build software and you you compile it, you make an installer, you burn it to disk, you ship it. Right. And if you screwed up, you have to ship again. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's like, okay, redeploy, I I double-clicked a batch script. All right, we're we're good. Yeah. Actually, it's probably a PowerShell script, (laughs) not a batch script, but, you know. They're not used to that iterative process. It goes back right. to that iterative design. Yeah, it's it's a recognition of, of a change in costs. Right. And the next one is the KISS. And for the talk, I used keep it short and simple, but there's also the keep it simple stupid. Yeah, keep it simple stupid is the only one I've ever heard before. Maybe I, that's because people more, call me stupid. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> that. Uh, it's also a really good band name. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but this is the idea here is you want to start with the simplest viable product. And only add complexity as it's needed to your architecture. So, and when I think of this, I think of within the .NET world or within the Node world, it, you, NPM and packages. Yeah. Um, or I, in .NET, NuGet packages. You want to start with the bare minimum to get the job done and only add things as they're necessary. You don't want to make a Swiss Army knife out of your software because it isn't. It's mm-hmm. a tool it's a can opener not a swiss army knife yeah no this is this is one thing i have noticed that um some of the old guard are really good at a little too good at because i was helping one of our our more advanced developers with uh, some of the logging stuff and she's like i 
I, I just can't get it to work. And so we, we turned on, um, the, the throw exception for the logger and I'm watching the exceptions come in and I realized you don't have the package you need to run this. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we installed that package and boom, it worked. So the next one is agile means no oversight. And it, you know, the idea here is that team members have autonomy. Autonomy does not mean no oversight. Right. And that, that's the key thing here. Um, your teams need to be able to make decisions about how to meet their users' needs because those needs are changing and coming forward as they're developing. Users provide information about what they want to happen. And then the team determines the implementation details for how to make that happen. Right. And this is a reflection of the fact that communication has changed. It isn't, you know, the distant users and the project managers go gather things and then come back. And, you know, you don't let the developers and the normal folks talk, which is where that came from. Mm -hmm. it, it really did. And it, it's it's interesting. I was talking to some people that came to my developer's role in Scrum Talk at Music City Tech. And they were telling me, they're like, yeah, as developers, we don't even work in the same building as our BAs. Yeah. Like, we don't have any contact with them other than a couple of meetings right before we start working on something. They, they send us the specs and then we go build to it. And that's pretty awful. Like it. And the thing about that is, is again, that is lengthening the time that it takes to get feedback. Yes. And if you ever do that, you move slower. Mm -hmm. What you want with an agile approach is to put those building the product as close as possible with those that are using it. The idea here is to reduce the impedance caused by separating the user from the creator. Developers are a lot better able to understand business requirements when they can ask them directly. Yeah. Versus having to go through an intermediary who, I don't know, they may be on vacation for a week. Mm -hmm. Well, if you've got a team of eight developers and they've got to ask a question and it has to go through a project manager who's in Florida. Yeah. It's going to take a week or two. Yeah. And, but and what are they doing in the meantime? Are they dead in the water and you're wasting money? Are they writing more code that you're going to rip out later? Like those are probably the two options. And there's really only one of those that is going to be tolerable because they're going to, you know, their manager management is going to be looking at them. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, if they're, if they're good developers, they're going to go, all right, there's nothing I can do about this. I've passed it up the chain. I've got some technical debt I need to go deal with. Yeah. You know, that's what I would do in that situation. And I consider myself a good developer. But if they're, you know, <laughs> the thing is, is the kind of developers who end up in that situation, a lot of times are there because they're not at the top of their game. Yeah, that's very they, true. They, they accept the situation. Mm -hmm. now, not always, but, and, and so they're going to be in a crowd of people that, yeah, that's, that are going to be doing you, that. You make a good point that a developer that would think to, all right, how can I maximize my time is going to be in a place where people are looking to maximize their developer's time. Right. You know, uh, it, it's, they're going to fit that culture better. So a, a good example of this is a few of our business product owners. I call them that because the other option is business owner. And I just really don't like calling them BOs. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the term business owner mainly because they don't own a business. That's the other reason it <laughs> like, true. I find that confusing. Yeah. The, the, the business side, we have them in our Slack channel. And I could also directly email them if I needed to. Now, our RBA, we can talk to. And, you know, thing is, if, if she were out of town, which there's going to be some times where she is, you know, people take vacations. That's just reality. When she is out of town, 
we just trade off who who makes the contact. If I need to know something that's affecting the API, I'm the one that makes the contact. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really, it's more about empowerment than it is about cutting oversight. Right. I mean, what you really want to happen is what happened to me the other day. I was walking to lunch and saw one of our, the business people who's like, uh, you know, an, on a different floor in the cafeteria. And he came up and said hi to me. Yeah. That's what you want. You want your developers to have that kind of a relationship because what Agile is doing here is it's promoting a lightweight, fast moving project governance. You may have reporting and other requirements for oversight because, you know. Yeah, you do. I do for sure. Um, we do as well. Um, and the, the big thing there is you honestly get more visibility into what the employees are doing, mm-hmm. not less. It's if you're in a big, complicated, planned upfront project, you can go for a year before you can tell if they've done anything. Right. Like that's an awful lot of money versus, okay, here's a sprint. You know, one thing I really like about what they've done where I work is they turned the reports into standups. So in our, our weekly reports that we have to turn in on what we've done instead of the, when I first started, it was, all right, we'll write a paragraph about what you've been working on and what you're planning on doing. Um, kind of like what you got coming up. Now it is literally bulleted. You've got done. That's what you did this week. Doing what you plan on doing next week impedes anything at a larger level um, that impedes you. You know, so like if, if you need a tool that's preventing you from doing something, that's where it goes there. And so that's how we write our reports. The, the developers send in. And it's, it's beautiful because I just go straight to my notebook talking about the episode that dropped today was, you know, career benefits of journaling. I go to my, my notebook and I go, all right, let me go through all my standups this week. And I put it all in there. And that report takes me like five minutes to write. Yeah. And then you're done and everybody has visibility, but they're not breathing down your neck. That's what Agile was trying to fix. Mm-hmm. Regular and ad hoc meetings should be set so that information can be passed up the chain and decisions made very quickly. That means having the stakeholders in the meeting. Right. Yeah, exactly. And like we do our planning meetings and we actually had an idea come up from one of our stakeholders in our planning meeting because they, they come in and they sit in the planning meeting when we're picking what we're going to do for this sprint. And um, so we'll pick what we're going to do out of the organized list. And then we'll say, are you guys okay with this, with us working on it? This sprint uh, rarely have they ever had any, any problems with that. But one of the stories we picked, someone asked, Hey, is this functionality in there? I'm like, Oh, we didn't know you guys needed that. Yeah. Like that just, you know, just, it was a, a different way of doing things that we're like, we didn't know you needed those two things to connect. And they're like, oh, yeah, because we use it in this use case and stuff like that. And it's like, all right. So our VA took some notes and she's like, I'll get with you afterwards and we'll create a story. So they come in for that that part. We can ask them any questions then and just clarifying type stuff. And then they're welcome to stay. They normally don't because why would you want to stick around while the developers are tasking things? Yeah. (laughs) API, I need to make an endpoint. I need to create. You know, my classes, I need to create my mappings. I yeah, need to that's, de- <laughs> that's boring for the developer, much less anybody else. So they're not going to be in there. No, no. But they, they come for that and all our other meetings. And it's it's really nice. It is great because we can just ask them, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Or they've had ideas in the meetings for like, oh, we didn't think about this, but we're going to need 
this or that, and we can add that to our backlog to do. What you want is to establish a process that is appropriately specific, but not overly prescriptive. And I pulled that from one of the blog posts that I read. I just don't remember exactly which one. So the next points we're going to talk about are more of the things that you hear from pro-agile people, especially when they've been reading a lot of stuff. I actually sat in an Indian restaurant a while back. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I think they like every curry place in Franklin, like all the wait staff know me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was listening to this guy at the next table, and he was talking about some of the things we're going to talk about here in a second. And it was very clear that he'd read some very good articles yeah. on Agile. It was very clear also that he had never done it. <laughs> um, and I'm going to start out with the first one. And the first one is basically his large premise was that Agile is a silver bullet. And it's not. And first of all, you shouldn't be looking for a silver bullet unless you have a werewolf problem. You don't. You have a software problem. You have a process problem. You don't have werewolves. So, like, that's you're going for the wrong thing anyway. But Agile is not the answer to all IT problems. It will not fix incompetent staff. It won't fix a situation where you don't have enough staff. It won't fix a situation where you're trying to solve an impossible problem. It won't fix a problem where you have too much staff. Yeah. You can fail with Agile. Yeah. Now, that said, failures are smaller and more frequent, so you can recognize the problem. That's one of the things I love about um, Scrum specifically, because it, it has enough structure in it to, to where the people that are like, there's no structure in this. I'm like, yeah, there is. Um, it has enough of that structure in there for them, but it's that retrospective. That idea that we're not just iterating over the design and over the project, but we're iterating over the process. And we're getting together and we're going, hey, what worked? What didn't work? Hey, we failed this sprint. Why did we fail it? What can we do better next time? Or even if you come close to failing, because we've come close a couple of times and we, in our retrospective, had conversations, some of more hard conversations to have about why did we almost fail this sprint? Why are we so stressed out and yeah. on the verge of snapping each other? Exactly. And, you know, the the ability to fail is is completely, you know, out of bounds for the way the process works. It's like, look, that's failure's part of life, mm-hmm. but it's it's limiting the damage and it's also allowing the feedback, like you said. Agile does allow you to change the process in response to a failure, a near failure, or a situation where you look and you go, man, we could have done this twice as fast. Yeah. You know, we succeeded, but there's no reason for it to have taken, you know, it's like a, it's like a glass half full thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the glass is half full. The glass is twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> that's, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. The thing is, it brings transparency, speaking of glass, and visibility to a project. That was intentional. <laughs> you can drop things that are not working and add new ones that get things done better during the project lifecycle. You don't have to wait until the end of the project to make a change to the way you're doing things. Yeah, and this really empowers developers. Like, there's nothing that is so damaging to morale as a situation that's messed up that you have to stay in. Like, that that's the absolute worst, where you're like, yeah, this is just the way it is, and I've got to accept learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. The next myth is that pure agile is the only answer. There are agile zealots out there. Yes. And you may have one on your team. Yes. And that's an upgrade from an agile priest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I jokingly say that I could be considered one because, you know, I, I did 
garner the nickname of Thor for dropping the hammer in a few meetings on people that were getting off topic. Yeah, and sometimes you have to do that. I don't know that that's necessarily being a zealot, but an agile zealot is a purveyor of agile as a silver bullet. Right. I mean, the, the idea here is that you can't have anything but pure agile. And when I was getting my CSM, Certified Scrum Master, the way they taught it was you're not doing Scrum unless you're doing exactly what we're prescribing. Right. And the big thing there is they didn't want people to just take a few pieces mm-hmm. and they go, oh, we're doing Scrum. And then they fail and then they blame Scrum. Yeah. I mean, I, I get why from a psychological and a marketing sort of standpoint. Yeah. Why they why they say that. But then you do have people who will take it too far. Yeah. And there, there's also a lot of theory. Um, and that's that's the big thing there as well. Is It's like, look, okay, this this works in theory in a vacuum. It's like the old joke about the farmer that had trouble with his dairy cows. And so he went to the physics department at the university to get help. <laughs> and they came back two weeks later and they said, okay, okay, we got a solution to your problem with your dairy cows, but it only works with spherical cows in a vacuum. <laughs> right? Some of the agile prescriptions that you get are not going to work in your organization. They are going to be for spherical cows in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, adding something new such as agile does increase the risk to the project. Um, you have to be pragmatic about your implementation. That's kind of the point of Agile is to be pragmatic about the way you're doing things. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is is you don't start fireproofing a place when it's already burning. That's the other thing you see a lot where they go, oh, well, we'll just we'll bring Agile in now that everything's failing and we're about to go under. Now let's try to change the process. No, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Then you got to clean up the mess you have. I'll tell you something that I have a lot of trouble with. That's looking beyond the ivory tower into the real-world implementation of project management because I spent so much time in academia, it's very easy for me to go, all right, this is pure agile. This is pure scrum. Yeah, this, this is, is the ideal world. Yeah, this is this is what we need to do. This is where... And, and the thing is, it's it's the ideal, so it's what we're striving for. But yeah. we're never going to reach it. Yeah. You know, we're never going to be perfect. Right. They're, well, they're, they're solving an abstraction of a problem or a meta problem, not, right. you know, the... It's it's like the discussion about um, you know that I, the the metaphor that I use frequently about software development in academia versus in the real world. In mm-hmm. academia, it's a movie sword fight. In the real world, it's a drunken knife fight on ice in the dark. <laughs> yeah. See, the thing with it is though that you can moderate the level of change and slowly increase it with agile. So you can bowl the frog. <laughs> yeah, you you really can. Like with me, I would. I would prefer jumping feet first into like pure scrum, pure agile, just yes, just do it all the right way the first time. But that's not going to work probably anywhere, but in in yeah. most places. Yeah, you're going to have to have a very, very special team who's probably like if the entire team is already at the level of agile zealotry where that could actually happen, you probably already have agile. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like the, those two, yeah. where the, the set that is the intersection of those two sets is the null mm-hmm. set. Yeah. The the interesting thing about it is you can build up to it. Yeah. You can make slow changes along the way. Um, the trick with it is you only want to stray away from Agile if you have valid business reasons, such as you may have rules, regulations, or organizational structure and cultural expectations that prevent full implementation of Agile. Right. Because we have that where I work. We have white label software that we install on clients in a production data center 
very, very secure. It requires other people on the other end, phone conversation. They're watching everything you're doing. Yeah. And as a result, we have a longer, like we can't release once a month. Mm -hmm. That dog don't hunt. Oh, yeah. And as a result, we have to change the way we do things so that we can release stable Mm -hmm. software. You know, the thing is, you can still implement some small changes in the direction of an agile approach, such as conduct and communicate lessons learned frequently and not just at the end of the project. So if you may only be able to put out a product or updates to your product once a year or twice a year. That's about where we are. Um, that doesn't mean you can't do a lessons learned once a month. Right. It means you should. Yeah. That makes it even more important, honestly. You can also still have daily stand-ups. Uh, short, 15-minute daily stand-ups. We have daily stand-ups. <laughs> I'll leave that where that is. It's a step. It's a uh, step. Sometimes we do get them down to 15 minutes. It's, we're working on it. That's a yeah. thing that's in progress right now. If ours go 15 minutes, it's usually because the stand-up has ended and we're talking about something in development that needs to be discussed. Yeah. But we have a small team, too. So So do we. Yeah. And set clear and realistic expectations for what work can be accomplished in a given period, not over-allocate resources. The, The final one is that Scrum is the same as Agile. And I don't really know where people got this one. Scrum is a popular methodology. It is iterative and adaptive, like Agile. The thing is, Scrum is probably one of the most popular Agile methodologies. And so, a lot of people confuse what is Scrum with what is Agile. Right. And Agile is an approach that follows a common set of values and principles that many methodologies fall under. Kanban, mm-hmm. for instance. like that. Obviously, that came out of industry yeah. first, but the way we do it in tech. That's an agile process. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And people mix and match. Oh, yeah, they do. Um, you know, we we do Scrum, but we also have a Kanban board for tracking. Yeah, you have stuff. to. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it this way, Scrum is like your specific programming language where agile is the type of project. So, agile is like a web or a desktop or a mobile application. And Scrum is that you are using .NET framework. Yeah, which, of course, is not true if you're doing all those. You're going to be using JavaScript. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know. So, my well-actually moment. <laughs> well, actually, Scrum came before Agile. Did you actually say it like that? Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, man. While there is some debate as to who and when, Scrum has been around since the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, actually, <laughs> after writing this... I did a little bit more research, uh, not specifically, it just came up in some other things I was looking at, and it was representatives from Scrum, Kanban, Extreme Programming, and several other methodologies that got together as a group and said, hey... They had a Scrum. Yeah, well, they well they, they had a, a conference, basically, where they got together and formed the Agile Manifesto. Yeah. Um, and Scrum actually comes from rugby, if I remember correctly? Yes. Yeah. It's... Uh, if you're in America and you're wondering, what is what does Scrum even mean? Think of it like football and Scrum is their word for huddle. Yeah. If the methodology had been formed in America, it would be called huddle. Which would be kind of weird, you know, saying that you're a huddle master. Yeah. It just sounds really strange. Well, my question is, if, if you're going to do that, would you have all your daily stand-ups at Huddle House? I don't know. <laughs> 
Oh, there we go. Go <laughs> crazy there. There are many other implementations of agile methodologies. We've listed quite a few already. Um, they'll have their own unique way of applying the principles of agile. Guys, these are just a few of the more common myths that you may encounter when talking to people about agile. There are many, many more out there. What we're hoping is that you can use this information when you come across these myths. It may help you to guide your employer into the agile world or help to improve the process by understanding where people can become confused. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I want to point out something that kind of came up earlier in the discussion. That is the idea that the lack of constraints actually gives you freedom. And that's not really the case. The lack of some constraints gives you freedom. The lack of any constraints is probably the worst situation you can be in. This is kind of where Agile shines is that it actually creates a scenario where you have enough constraints to go in the right direction, but not constrictive constraints. And you'll see this a lot in the rest of your life as well. BJ and I just had this discussion before we recorded tonight where we were doing a whole lot of stuff with the podcast and we had all these directions we wanted to go and, you know, we could do this, we could do this. But the fact is, is we were starting to get really, really messed up because we're trying to do a hundred things at once versus doing one thing well. That's what I want to come back to here is that you should spend more time trying to figure out the direction you're going and focusing in on one thing versus necessarily keeping all the options open. Sometimes the lack of constraints is actually more constraining than having constraints. And that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.